Well, last week, we began our new series through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and we've entitled this series, Awaiting the Return of the King, because our overarching question throughout this series is, how do we live as followers of Jesus Christ, the King, today, here and now, but in the light of his return to come? Jesus is coming again. How should that impact and inspire our lives today? Now, last week we covered a lot of background, uh, history, and geography. Uh, we set the scene for this series, the context, to help us understand how do we get to Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonians. And we considered much of Acts chapters 15 to 18. I hope you managed to stay with me as we followed Paul and Silas and Timothy on their missionary journey west, uh, eventually through to Thessalonica, which was the Roman capital of ancient Macedonia, basically North Macedonia today. And we saw how Paul especially was forced on, often violently, from place to place on that journey. He was chased from pillar to post by hostile Jews opposing the gospel, and as such, he eventually arrives in Corinth, tired, he's fed up, he's worried, and depressed. But then, Timothy returns back from Thessalonica with a wonderful report of how the church have been getting on since they left a few months before, and clearly, Paul is so encouraged, as he really needed to be at that time. And we saw some early evidence of that just in the opening three verses of chapter one last week. He uh, greets the church in Thessalonica really warmly. He reminds them of who they are and their true identity and security. As he says, they are in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them of the grace and peace that are theirs in Christ. And he begins to detail why he's so thankful for them. And it's particularly for their godly lives, which is shown in work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. Now that was last week, and as I say, there was a lot of background, but hopefully that enables us to now dig in through the series into what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. And we're going to continue right from where we left off last week. Uh, we're going to look at verses 4 to 7 this morning, if you've got a Bible with you. And as we think about how we await the return of the king, as you can see from this morning's title on the slide, uh, and as we uh, thought about a little bit with the children, we're going to focus today on lives that are transformed by the gospel. Well, let's read uh, our passage for this morning together. Uh, and although we're focusing on verses 4 to 7, I'm going to begin again at verse 1 so we can keep the overall flow uh, of Paul's letter. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. 
We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, in the NIV translation that I've just read, uh, and that w- what we commonly use here, and you might see in your Bibles if you've got one, they've made verse four a new sentence, uh, a new paragraph even, when actually it probably shouldn't be. You see, verse four really continues the thought that we begun last week from verse two, namely why Paul and his companions continually thank God for the church in Thessalonica. As we thought about last week, they are so thankful for the Thessalonians' work, their labor and endurance, and those are prompted by faith, love, and hope. However, they are also thankful because of everything that is revealed in verses four and five, which we're gonna consider in a moment. But this morning, as we focus on transformed lives whilst awaiting the return of the king, I want us to do so under two headings, and those headings are centered entirely on the gospel. It is the gospel alone that truly transforms lives, and it's lives that are transformed by the gospel that enable us to glorify God as we await the return of Jesus, the King. Do you ever look around you at the world, at people, perhaps people you know, your family, at yourself, and think that'll never change. They'll never change. It's just not possible. I can't change. I've been stuck in this pattern of behavior for years, this attitude, this characteristic, this whatever it may be. And I'm not just talking about addictions here, although of course that very much comes into it, But aspects of our lives and the lives of those around us that we would perhaps long for change and yet we don't really believe it's possible if we're honest with ourselves. Have you ever heard the adage, people don't change? Maybe you've said it or believe it yourself. I've got to be honest with you, I hold a great deal of sympathy to that position. Uh, both from my own life and witnessing the lives of people around me. And I'm talking about within the church, uh, just as much as, as outside. And yet, such a position is not really biblical at all. It's not what God teaches us through his word. We can change, indeed we must change, as we are transformed by and through the gospel more and more into the likeness of Jesus. 
But can I suggest that if we don't think we've changed since perhaps becoming a Christian, either it's difficult for us to realize because we're too close to ourselves, and we need to ask those around us, people who know us well, uh, our family, people who can see things much more clearly, and that may encourage you, or if it is actually true that we haven't changed, then that's something we should be deeply concerned by. Again, I wonder if you've heard this quote, God loves you just the way you are, which we absolutely believe, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Now why is that true? Because he wants the very best for you. And what is the very best? Well, that is for us to become more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus. Now I believe such transformation happens by the power of God at work in us, his Holy Spirit leading and shaping us, so that is a work of God. And yet, in a way, in a sense, we've got to allow him to work. In Galatians 5, Paul speaks of us keeping in step and walking in the Spirit. Now, if he says that, clearly, that suggests we can do the opposite. We can keep out of step. We cannot walk in the Spirit. And so often we do. So what can we do, what can we learn from Paul and the Thessalonian church as we long to change and we long for our lives to be transformed for Jesus? Well, let's consider our first point together this morning, looking at verse uh, 4 and the first part of verse 5, receiving the gospel. Paul writes in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, as you may well know, this language of being chosen uh, is often referred to as election or the doctrine of election. And as John Stott writes, and uh, I'm very grateful to him for writing this, to whatever denomination or tradition we may belong, the doctrine of election causes us difficulties and questions. And he's absolutely right. Why so? Well, because it perhaps causes us to question, why are some seemingly chosen and some not? How is that even fair? What does that mean in terms of our evangelism, how we share our faith? Now, we're not going to go into a great discussion on election, mainly because that's not Paul's point here. However, because I know it's not satisfying to hear something mentioned and then left, I do believe that the Bible clearly teaches election. In fact, it's a truth that runs right through the Bible, uh, beginning with perhaps God's call of Abraham, or you could even go earlier, and later his choice of Israel out of all the nations to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19. And then that same language of being chosen is deliberately transferred in the New Testament to the Christian community, to the church. Famously in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes to us, we're included, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Interestingly, as Stock continues, when 
The topic of election is nearly always introduced in the Bible. It is for a practical purpose. For example, to foster assurance, not presumption. Holiness, not apathy. Humility, not pride. And witness, not lazy selfishness. But still no explanation of God's election is given except God's love. And that's made abundantly clear in Deuteronomy 7. This is speaking of Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. Similarly, here in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Paul unites the love of God and the election of God. That is, he chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're lovable, but only because he is love. And I'm afraid that is the glorious and yet perplexing mystery that we've got to rest content in. Uh, you can chat with me more afterwards if you like. We could spend a long time going into election and what that looks like. But the key point that Paul is making here is that they thank God continually for the Thessalonians because they know that God loves them and has chosen them. They know that they are his people. And verse 5 gives their basis for this. However, before we look at that, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you know that these words are true for you too? Do you know, brother or sister, that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you purely because he loves you. Isn't that stunning? That should shape our lives. That fuels our transformation. Don't fight that truth. Don't question if it is true. Receive it. Take hold of it. Enjoy it even. You are so precious to God, chosen and loved by him. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, why can't this be true for you? As I've said, doctrine of election is a mystery, and yet the Bible also clearly teaches that we are all responsible for our actions, and we are responsible to God for whether we respond to him and put our trust in Jesus. It is a paradox Talk to me about paradoxes afterwards, if you like. Yes, there is election, but there is also human responsibility and us declaring Jesus is Lord in repentance. Why can't that be you this morning? Long for it to be so. But in the first part of verse 5, Paul explains his reasoning for verse 4 why he knows they are loved and chosen by God. And it all comes down to how the gospel came to them and how it was received by them. Now, don't mistake Paul's uh, meaning for undermining the use of words, as he says uh, in verse uh, 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words. Clearly, we absolutely must use words in proclaiming the gospel, in fact, so often we react against this the other way. Uh, people frequently, supposedly, quote St. Francis of Assisi 
as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It sounds very profound, and it's appealing to us because we, we really struggle in using words. Essentially, it's saying, you know, make your deeds matter. Show the gospel through how you live. Now, obviously, in many ways, we absolutely hold to that, and we should be doing that. But besides the fact that St. Francis never said that, and he wouldn't have said that, we must preach the gospel using words. Otherwise, how can someone truly hear it? Romans 10, 14, 15, Paul writes this, How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What's the good news? It's the gospel. We must use words to bring people to an awareness of their sin, their brokenness, impending judgment as a result, all the things we thought about in our here we stand, eternal destiny in hell, without God, but then the astonishing news of God's incredible love in sending the Lord Jesus to die in our place, to pay our just penalty, that we may go free and have life everlasting with him. And it's all a gift. It is completely free and available by grace, if only we would receive it. That is good news. That is the greatest news that we could ever tell. And it's the news that we must tell to all those around us as we desperately love the lost, which we thought about a few weeks ago. But Paul says the gospel didn't come to the Thessalonians simply or purely with words. It also came with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, what does that mean? Well, I believe it's rarely or perhaps never just words alone that causes someone to truly respond and receive the gospel. It is always a work of the Holy Spirit in revealing sin, in removing the scales from our eyes so we can truly see, in recognizing who Jesus really is. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the gospel in power. And yes, we might naturally think of signs and wonders here, and we might think that that's what Paul was speaking of. It doesn't seem like that is actually particularly what he means by power here from what different commentators have written. It's more speaking about that internal power of the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts and our minds and our consciences to bring the deep conviction that Paul writes. And that deep conviction is both in terms of how Paul preached to them, but also how they received it in their hearts. People often ask, how do I know the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, to be true? And those are great questions and completely understandable. And we could go into all kinds of apologetic answers where we look into the history, uh, the accuracy, the reliability. We could build up an extremely strong, rational argument. And I genuinely believe we can do that. And I think we should do that. And it has a real place for many people. And yet I often come back to what most settles it for me is when I read the Bible Internally, and I know it's subjective, internally I know it to be the word of God. 
to be truth. Why? Because it penetrates my heart with power, with deep conviction through the Holy Spirit. I know that it is not simply words that I'm reading. Otherwise, I could just let it go and move on. Walk out the door right now. Why would I be preaching here this morning? And that is why I would urge people, you know, and we should urge people, spend time reading the Bible, discussing it, listening to sermons. Uh, And I can assure you that makes me feel the great responsibility of preaching. But do so, read, listen, engage, and consider whether it's just words to you, or does it come with power, with deep conviction, and the Holy Spirit. I genuinely believe it will if we're truly open. So as we come to the end of this first point, in order to have lives that are utterly transformed by the gospel, we have to receive it, and receive it with deep and powerful conviction. Perhaps for some of us, we need that fire reawakened within us. We need the Holy Spirit to move again in power within us. We need to remind ourselves of just how loved we are as God's chosen people. How can that not transform the way we live our lives as a result? And that brings us to our second final point this morning. Having looked at receiving the gospel, now from the second half of verse 5 to verse 7, let's consider transmitting the gospel. Now, I know that perhaps sounds strange, uh, and we don't use the word transmitting very often, But I want us to have that image of a broadcast or a signal that is being sent from one place to another, and that picture that we've received this broadcast, we've received the gospel, and we've truly received it to such an extent that it's changed us, it's transforming us, and now we are desperate to pass it on, to transmit it out, because we know it needs to be out on the airwaves, if you'll forgive the, it's not really a pun, but how does that happen? Well, as we look at the end of verse five through to verse seven, the answer is imitation. Firstly, the believers in Thessalonica became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They knew how they lived among them, as Paul writes, because they saw it firsthand, verse 5. They were with them, they lived, they saw them. And Paul is then happy to relate their imitating of him with imitating Jesus. Now, we might shirk a little here, particularly when we think about our own lives, but Paul was very happy, even confident, to do this as we see elsewhere in his other lives, because he knows his calling and his desire to imitate Jesus himself. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Wow, that is quite something to say. Would you be happy to say the same to another believer around you? Perhaps a new Christian, a younger brother or sister, Encourage them to follow your example, to even imitate you, as you follow and imitate Jesus. I think I'd be more than a little hesitant. And yet, why should we be, provided, of course, we have truly received the gospel and are seeking to follow Jesus? Actually, we should then seek to model and point to Jesus in everything we do, 
for one another as Christians just as much as to those outside the church. And clearly that is exactly what the Thessalonians did and it was proven to be truly genuine. And we can see that in that, as Paul writes, they did so even in the midst of severe suffering. Real persecution and opposition. Again, think about some of the stuff we thought about with Paul last week as he was violently forced on. They're facing that atmosphere of persecution and opposition all the time. And yet they could do so with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes in verse 6. There is no way they could have otherwise withstood the severe uh, suffering with joy unless they'd truly been living by the gospel and it had transformed their lives. And they'd been imitating Paul and ultimately Jesus. Are we willing to imitate those around us, those we believe to be godly examples who are seeking to imitate Jesus themselves? Yes, our primary focus should and it must be on imitating Jesus. And there are all kinds of dangers in hero worship outside of him, uh, which we could go into. And yet, it is so helpful and healthy to have godly role models to learn from, to be mentored by, and to spend time with. And I'd encourage you to really think about that and consider if that may be for you, Or perhaps you're at a stage in life when actually that should be you. And you need to recognize your calling and responsibility to model and mentor and nurture those around you. The obvious example for many of us is as parents with children, that should very much be our calling and our responsibility. Pointing them to Jesus in the way we live and speak and serve. But actually, as we come to verse 7, really that call is for all of us. But I do, I do believe it, it's to differing degrees, depending on our experience and maturity. What Paul says in verse 7 is remarkable. He says, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, if we could just briefly put the map up again from last week, just to show you, you'll see uh, on the left there, Macedonia and Achaia, that is a huge area. It basically represents all of modern-day Greece and North Macedonia. And it includes the churches in Philippi, Berea, Athens, Corinth, to name just a few. And Paul is saying that the believers in Thessalonica have become a model to all the other believers in that area. It is the only time that Paul writes to a particular church that their faith was a pattern, was a model that inspired believers elsewhere. What a wonderful thing that is. How we should aspire to that today, that our lives are such a model as to inspire others in their walk with Jesus. That we, and therefore they, can do so, even in the midst of severe suffering. And I know that there are, there are some like that in our church who model that so well. And what a blessing and witness that is. How can we do that? Because we have truly received and grasped the gospel. That is genuine evidence of lives transformed, particularly as joy is experienced and expressed throughout. The joy that we can have even in the midst of suffering. Joy doesn't just mean happiness. 
much more profound than that. It can stay with you even in the midst of real pain and suffering in this world because it is rooted in Jesus in our security to come. The Thessalonian church were radiating the gospel, and that's a different metaphor, transmitting it on all frequencies, if you like. Is that our desire? Is that your desire this morning? We often talk of people being infectious around us, and I don't mean COVID or illness. I mean their personality, their joy, their character, their laughter. Why don't we long to be infectious for the gospel? Maybe don't use that word in our current time. It's probably not the best word to use. But have that desire that the gospel would flow out of us so naturally in the way we live and speak in such a way that it draws others in, those that are outside the church, but it also encourages and builds each other up within the church as we imitate and model Jesus. How do we await the return of the king? We do so with lives that are radically transformed by the gospel, radically different from the world around us, from who we were before. As we focus on at baptism, we have died to that life. As we go down into the water, we come up to new life in Christ. Let's believe it and live in that. And we can only do that if we have truly received the gospel and go on receiving the gospel. Don't think, well, I received the gospel 40 years ago and it you know, has no impact on me anymore. Keep on reminding yourself receiving the gospel and in turn we then live to radiate and transmit the gospel in all that we do. And to all that will listen on every frequency, imitate and model what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. I want, to take a, I want us to take some time uh, to respond together. We've got a wonderful opportunity to do that shortly in a moment as we'll share communion. But before we do that, let's just spend some time in quietness, in prayer before God. Perhaps for some of us, we need to receive the gospel. Maybe even for the first time this morning. Repent and come back to God. Receive his free gift of grace, the Lord Jesus, given for you. And know, truly know, how loved and accepted and chosen you are. Perhaps for some of us, as I said earlier, we need that fire reawakened within us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to move again in power within us to bring that deep conviction as only he can. Why not do that now? And for all of us, let's pray that we would live out, we would transmit this glorious gospel to the world that so desperately needs it. They need to hear it, they need to see it in the way we live. Let's take some time in quietness now and then I'll pray.